The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. This morning, we'll give attention to Luke, chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. To the end of the chapter. Luke writes these words. He says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village or a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. If you've been tracking with us as we've been making our way through Luke's gospel, you will want to know that a a unique uh, sort of break takes place here at the beginning of our text. This beginning in verse 51, we find ourselves at the beginning of a new section of Luke's gospel. Really, everything uh, from the beginning of the gospel up to this point has focused on Really, everything from the birth of Christ and his advent through his Galilean ministry. But now things are changing, and Luke's focus is changing, and his focus is changing, and the way he sets that for us is by giving us verse 52, where he simply notes for us, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. From this point on, everything that Luke records for us in the gospel is... is is a part of Jesus' mission or his movement, if you will, toward the city of Jerusalem. Everything from this point on, everything that he says, everything that he does, is a part of his redemptive plan that is leading toward Jerusalem. It's leading toward all of the events that will take place in that particular city. And all of the redemptive events that will take place there, everything is leading toward the final Passover where the Lamb of God is going to be slain for our sins. From here on out, for the rest of the gospel, everything that we read, the cross is in the background, and the cross is in view, and Jesus is heading intentionally in that direction. We're told Jesus set his face, and really there's two things worth noting there. 
when we see this phrase, set his face, it simply is a word, a phrase that means sort of a firm resolution or a, a resolute focus. The point here is there, there's an intentionality that's going on here. There's something very intentional that's happening. Jesus knows he has an appointment to be kept in Jerusalem. And he is intentionally turning his attention and his focus toward that end. He understands why he's come. He understands what he's come to do. And he's orchestrating all of the events toward that end. His movement toward Jerusalem is, is not going to be, as we, as we sort of make our way through, you're going to see it's not in a straight line. I mean, he's actually not all that far, just a couple days' walk from Jerusalem. When he says this, it's not like he, he makes a straight journey there. He, in fact, from here on out, zigzags around the region for a little while before he actually makes it to Jerusalem. But everything that he does and everything that he says is leading toward that end. He knows precisely when he needs to arrive in Jerusalem at the final Passover. He is the Lord of all history. He knows when his appointment is with the cross. He will not arrive too early. He won't arrive too late. He is in complete control of the timeline. In fact, he's setting the timeline. And so he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And so here, as we sort of begin this, Jesus, or excuse me, Luke focuses on what Jesus has to say about the kingdom, particularly in relation to what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be his disciple, and to be one who is a part of his kingdom. And he does that here in this last section of chapter 9 by sort of presenting to us four little vignettes, if you will, four little brief encounters that Christ or his disciples has with either individual people or, in the first case, a group of people. The people, as far as we can tell, are unrelated to one another, and it's not absolutely certain whether they sort of, particularly the last three, come in close proximity time-wise, or if there's some time gap. Some of that is left to our own uh, sort of imagination. Uh, we were not given the time stamps, if you will, in that regard. But in these four sort of vignettes, what we see and what Luke is wanting us to understand is he's wanting us to get a glimpse of the various ways people respond to the call to follow Christ. Various ways people respond to Christ's call upon their life to follow after him, to, to come into saving faith and to be a part of his kingdom and then to follow on with discipleship from that point. And in these little vignettes, we learn a, a lot about the nature of discipleship. We learn specifically about the price and, and the priority and the timing of discipleship. What it means to follow Christ. And we also get, at least in the first vignette, a glimpse into the heart of Christ. And a, a sort of a, a glimpse into his remarkable mercy and his patience. It's on display. And it's on display in contrast to the harsh judgmentalism of his followers. And it's meant to be instructive for us. We'll get there in a moment. The last three sort of vignettes really are, are, are three different, Luke wants us to see three different wrong ways people respond to the call to follow Christ. And he wants us to examine our own hearts to make sure that those, this has not been our response. Now before we go too far into the text, I want to just give you a quick note here. Uh, we have to recall as we're watching Jesus interact with individual people that when Jesus deals with individuals, he has information that we don't necessarily know that he has from the text. We know this because in various accounts that we've seen up to this point, we've been told things like there was a crowd, but Jesus knew their hearts. 
You remember seeing that a couple of times already in Luke's gospel? He knew their hearts. He knew their motivations. He understood what was going on on the inside of them. And so he responded to them or engaged them in a particular way that was sort of customized to what he knew about their hearts. And it's important for us to remember that as we look at how Jesus particularly deals with the three individuals that he encounters in our text. Because some of what Jesus says, at least on the surface, can seem cold and it can seem harsh if we don't recall that Jesus knows something about the hearts of these people. He sees beyond what's on the surface, the one sentence statements that we have recorded in the text that they say. He knows what's going on inside of them. He understands their motives. And the way he engages them is both a response to what they say, but it's also, it's also targeted at exactly what he knows is going on in their hearts. And so we'll extrapolate some of that but I mention that to you because we need to be very careful in, in sort of extrapolating too far out in our application when Jesus is dealing with particular individuals, if that makes sense. Because sometimes he's dealing with a particular thing that is uh, going on in a particular individual's heart that isn't necessarily meant to be sort of instructive for everyone writ large. I'll try to point that out as, as, as we come across it in the text. But beginning in verse 52, we get this first vignette. We're simply told that Jesus sent some messengers ahead of him into a village of the Samaritans. Now, we haven't talked much about the Samaritans thus far in Luke's gospel. So I want to just give you just a brief sort of sketch of who are these people and why do they react the way that they do to Jesus. There's a map that I can show you. You may be able to see it. Um, I don't know if you can read it, but you see the red area is Samaria. Just to the north of that is Galilee. And just to the south of that is Judea. Jesus and his disciples are active both in Galilee and from this point on somewhat in Judea as they make their way down to Jerusalem, which happens to be also in Judea. Samaria is right in between those two locations. It is an area that is inhabited by people who are called Samaritans. What you need to understand at this point simply is this. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They, they hated each other. They despised each other. There were, there were centuries of, of racial animosity that had been building up up to the first century. Uh, it goes back literally hundreds of years to all the way to the Old Testament when the Assyrians invaded uh, the land and they deported the Israelites, or not all of them, but a good portion of the Israelites were deported and scattered all throughout the Assyrian Empire. Well, they left behind some Israelites in the land but not only did they sort of export all of the Israelites all over the Assyrian kingdom, but they imported a bunch of Assyrians and, and sort of had them resettle the, the Jewish lands. And what sort of happened after that was these resettled Assyrians intermarried with some of the Israelites who were left behind and in these sort of mixed marriages that resulted in a whole generation and generations to follow of people who were not actually Assyrians, but they were not pure Israelites either. They were a hybrid of the two, if you will. They became known as the Samaritans. Samaria was the, the capital city of the kingdom at the time. And the Samaritans represented sort of a blending of Assyrian and Israelite culture. They also represented a blending of Assyrian and Israelite religion. So their worship was sort of this concoction that resembled Israelite worship, but it had all these pagan elements sort of mixed in with it at the same time. 
Instead of worshiping in Jerusalem, Samaritans had built a temple. In history, they'd built a temple on Mount Gerizim. And that was the focal point of their worship as opposed to the temple in Jerusalem. During the intertestamental period between the time of the Old Testament and the New, uh, all sorts of things had happened. Some wars broke out and the Israelites destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. It had not been rebuilt by the time we get to our text or in history uh, by the time we get to this text that plays out in front of us. So there was this competition of worship between focusing on Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans versus Jerusalem for the Israelites. And so all of that to say the Israelites viewed the Samaritans as sort of idolatrous half-breed people. They saw them as sellouts and they despised them. In fact, it was so bad, I, I think I put another map on here just to show you this. It was so bad that if you can see the map on the left, like if you were traveling from Galilee to Judea, the shortest route would be to cut right through the middle of Samaria. But most Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they wouldn't even take the shortest route. They would literally go all the way over and cross the Jordan River and come around through Perea into Judea so they never even had to step on the dirt in Samaria. That's how much they hated those people. They didn't want Samaritan dirt on their feet. You talk about racial bigotry and racial animosity and racial hatred. That's pretty, that's pretty steep. I don't even want your dirt to touch my shoe. So this is the backdrop to all of this. Of course, in spite of all of this sort of cultural racial animosity and hatred that's going on, Jesus doesn't buy into any of that garbage, does he? He looks at the Samaritans just like he looks like every other individual human being or any other people group in the world. He sees them as lost, as sheep without a shepherd, as people who need a savior. The Samaritans needed a savior too. And Jesus had not come only to be the Messiah for the Israelites. He had come to be the savior of the world. And though it may be a surprise to all the Israelites of that day, and though it may be a surprise to a lot of people in our culture, heaven is going to be populated by people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. No nation has favored status in the eyes of Christ. No people and no race have favored status in the eyes of Jesus. When he looks out upon the sea of humanity, he sees people who are lost and need a savior. And so Jesus sends his disciples right into Samaria to a village, we're told, not which village, but he sends them into Samaria. And all we're told, we don't know what it transpires when they go there, all we're told is that the Samaritans, when they entered the village, they didn't receive him. They didn't receive him. That is to say that they, they went to make preparations for Jesus to come, but they were rejected. The Samaritans refused to offer them hospitality. They refused to, to provide the means that were, were necessary for Jesus and his disciples to sort of uh, sustain themselves through Samaria. They basically told the disciples to go kick rocks, to get lost. They said, you're not welcome here. We're told why. We're, we're told that simply they, they refused to offer hospitality, and the reason is because they were heading toward Jerusalem. They, it wasn't just that they didn't like Jews, but they were so, they were so ticked off still about this, this competition between Jerusalem and the temple and the temple at Mount Gerizim and their temple got destroyed any Jews that were heading toward the temple in Jerusalem that was just something they couldn't take any part of if you were a Jew coming through and you were going to Jerusalem they wanted no part of you wanted no part of you 
And so they rejected the disciples and therefore rejected Christ. Now it's important to note here that Jesus faced, and we've seen this all along, rejection at many points along his ministry, actually all throughout. We've seen it already in Capernaum. We saw it actually at the very beginning. We saw this sort of, this sort of hinted at at his birth when he's in Bethlehem and there's, there's no place to even welcome him. He's, his family, he's given birth. He's born literally in a cave or in a stable, animal feeding area. And it follows him all through his life. His own hometown, Nazareth, he's rejected there. He goes and heals a a demoniac in Gadara. He's rejected there and told to get lost. Various places throughout Galilee, he faced the same thing. And so it's not a surprise to us as we're tracking along that the Samaritans also reject him at this point. And I think it's worth noting here, if Christ faced that much rejection, there's probably an instructive point to all of his followers here. Those who follow closely with him are going to face the same thing. If you think following Christ is going to be a walk in the park, then somebody sold you a bill of goods that isn't true. The path of discipleship of following Jesus is a path that looks a lot like his. Rejection. The question isn't, will Christ be rejected or will we be rejected? The question is, how, are we, how do we respond when that kind of rejection takes place? And James and John have a, a really good idea uh, on how to respond to all of this, right? When, when they see the, the inhospitable spirit of the Samaritans, they have a, a great reaction, don't you think? It doesn't sit well with them at all. They are ticked off. Jesus didn't give them the nickname the Sons of Thunder for nothing. Right? Jesus, here's our idea. Just say the word and we'll call down fire from heaven on these people. Jesus, let's nuke them. We're going to incinerate them right now. Now, on one hand, it's fairly remarkable that they have the faith to believe they can actually make that happen. But it's also incredibly callous to think that followers of Christ could look at an entire group of people and say, okay, I'm perfectly fine with just turning them to dust in a moment. They didn't make this up out of thin air. In 2 Kings chapter 1, you can go back and read it later, verses 1 through 15, the the prophet Elijah uh, called down fire from heaven uh, and and burned up some folks who... uh, who were, were, were mocking him. And the context is altogether different, but the concept is at least there. And it's probably from there where they grabbed the idea in the Old Testament. Hey, we'll be like Elijah and toast these people. They're going to be that unkind. And their own righteous sort of indignation and their own wounded pride, they were ready at that moment to pronounce judgment on all this village. Not only to pronounce judgment, but to execute judgment. And Jesus rebukes them because he's a merciful Savior. He makes clear that that this is not the way we respond to rejection. This is not the way he responded to rejection ever, and it's not the way his people should ever respond to rejection either. Jesus never, he never responds to lost people with anger and vengeance. He never responds to lost people with with a sort of a a fly-off-the-handle sort of an anger, a desire to destroy, even when they reject him. 
In fact, really toward the end of his ministry, the, the, we, we see Jesus, he, we, we talked about him setting his face to Jerusalem. When, when he gets to Jerusalem, we see him on the, outset, on the outskirts of the city, looking out over the city, and he's contemplating what's about to take place, and he realizes and is, is sort of internally processing that the people to whom he was sent, the Israelites, have as mass rejected him. Does he respond with anger? Does he respond with vengeance? No, we're told he weeps. He looks over that city and he weeps. He's brokenhearted over their rejection. He isn't angry. Even on the cross, as he's being nailed, nails driven into his hands and his feet, gasping for air, he's looking out over lost people who've rejected him. And his cry is not, Father, destroy them. His cry is what? It's, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. There's a number of problems with James and, and uh, John's reaction here. The first of which is this. Right now is not the time for judgment. That's Jesus' message at the time. This is not the time for judgment. This is a time for mercy, and it's a time for patience. It's an opportunity for men to receive him and to be saved. There's a time that is coming for judgment. There is a place for judgment, and Jesus speaks of judgment that's to come often. But the time for that isn't now. The time is in the future when Christ returns, and then he settles all accounts. And judgment takes place then, but now is not the time for that kind of a heart or for that kind of an attitude. We have a Savior in Christ who is patient, who is merciful, even with men in their sin, who is long-suffering with them that they might at some point repent and believe. And Jesus' followers ought to model that quality. James and John are utterly lacking in both patience and mercy. They replace those things in their heart with anger and vengeance. And that's not the way believers are to respond to rejection, ever. Not then and not now. It wasn't a time for judgment. It's not a time for us to judge now. The word of God makes all judgments. We engage people even when they reject with mercy and with patience, with a heart that's broken that we would see them come to Christ. The second problem with their response is that Jesus is the judge, not the disciples. They've forgotten that God is the only one who is capable of actually judging righteously. They have assumed God's role in judgment. They have observed what's taken place. They've rendered a judgment, and they're ready to execute it in a moment. They've literally usurped the place of God in judging an entire village. a serious problem. And it's a serious problem that can often find its way into our own lives, can't it? We can very easily make judgments about people and want to see God execute what we feel is justice, as though somehow we have the right to make that judgment, or the authority, or all the information, in fact, when we have none of the above. Whenever we do that, we usurp the place of God. We are removing God from the throne. We're saying, I belong there. I have enough information to make a judgment. I have enough information to condemn or to pardon. And we never do. The third problem is Jesus has already told them how to deal with rejection. 
when he sent them out two by two previously, he told them, when you go into a village, if they don't receive you, if they don't welcome you, if they don't offer hospitality to you, do you remember what he told them to do? Call down fire and incinerate them? No. He said, you shake the dust off your shoes and you leave and go to another village. That's what you do. Clearly, that message did not take heart, right? (laughs) They've forgotten it that quickly, as do we. And the bottom line for for us is this. God's people, people like us, people like his followers, are to be people whose lives are marked by patience and mercy, not anger and vengeance. Far too often, what the world sees from God's people is anger and vengeance, not patience and mercy. Our hearts really should be broken with compassion for lost people when they reject Christ, even when they reject us. Phil Riken writes this. He says, we need hearts that are filled with the compassion of Christ. We need more than knowledge of Scripture. We need the spiritual insight to know how to apply it to our own situation. Never is this more important than when we think we have a responsibility to defend God's cause. We may be right about the sin in someone's life or a problem in the church or some ungodliness in government or the prevailing errors of our culture. But are we responding in a way that demonstrates the kindness of God, the mercy of Christ, and the truth of the Spirit speaking in Scripture? It's not just a matter of being right, but it's a matter of how we engage when we think we're right. Let me ask you this question. Do the people around you, the people that either reject you or have rejected your efforts at evangelism, do they know you as a person who responds to them with kindness and mercy and patience? Or is the testimony of your life one of anger, resentment, vengeance? Well, James and John had it wrong. They eventually get it right, but in this case, they had it wrong. Jesus, or Luke, moves on to the next vignette sort of abruptly, and he tells us about as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, this is verse 57 and 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he moves from this rejection of the Samaritans to an individual who meets them along the road. And he wants to focus here on sort of the price of following after him. And he tells us that Jesus is walking along the road. And just like any time he walked, there was a crowd that was traveling with him. The crowd is always a mixed bag. Inside the crowd, there are people who are genuine followers of Christ. There are some true disciples. Then there's a, a broader circle of people who are just sort of curiosity seekers, people who, who have seen him do miracles or they're drawn by some of the curious things that he's saying and doing, and they're just sort of watching and looking and listening, but they haven't committed themselves to him. They're just sort of observing, seeing where this whole thing is going to go. And then there's always mixed in some people who outright are his opponents. And then there are some people who are just sort of on the fence. One of those folks on that crowd addresses Jesus, and he makes a very bold statement. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, we want to ask the question, who is this individual? Luke doesn't tell us who this individual is, but Matthew does tell us something about this individual. It's very important. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 19, Matthew records it this way. He says, and a scribe came up and said to him, 
teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. So it wasn't just anyone. This was a scribe that happened to be in the crowd. A scribe that was mixed in with the group comes to Jesus and says this. Now the scribes were sort of the experts in understanding, interpreting, and in teaching Jewish law. They were the, the religious law experts. And largely as a group, they despised Jesus and rejected him and opposed him at every turn. So this man, from every outward appearance, would have been a prized convert. This is somebody from like the, 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 the most dug-in group of opponents of his ministry who is seemingly wanting to switch teams here. And he comes at him with a bold pronouncement, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. I mean, he looks like a tremendous prospect. He's willing to follow Jesus wherever Jesus wants to go. He doesn't qualify the statement in any way about where Jesus is going to go and what the terms are of his following. He simply seemingly wants to just become a disciple and follow Christ truly. And coming from a scribe, that's remarkable. You'd expect Jesus to say something to him like this, welcome, we could use somebody like you as a part of the team. But Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew this man's motivations. And his motives are selfish. He's seen and heard all that, that Jesus has been doing. He's, he, he's, he recognizes Jesus' power, the power to, to perform miracles, to heal people, to raise the dead. He recognizes Jesus' authority as a teacher. Nobody taught like Christ did. And for a teacher who knows how to evaluate teachers to see king of all teachers he respects that and he wants to be a part of what's going on but he has no true understanding of Jesus true mission he has no understanding of the the cost of following after Christ in his mind Jesus is the hot new teacher in town and he's on the rise he's gonna rise to the top he thinks he that Jesus is on his way to popularity and to power and to privilege and to wealth he has no sense where Jesus is actually heading toward rejection, toward false accusation, toward arrest, toward beating, toward crucifixion, toward the cross where he'll die. He thinks Jesus is on a fast track toward the top, and he thinks he's going to ride on his coattails to all those same things. He sees a winner in Jesus, and he wants to hitch his horse to a winner. His motives at the heart are selfish and they're self-serving I'll follow you anywhere you want to go Jesus because I believe you're going somewhere big and I want to go somewhere big and so Jesus replies to him accordingly in what is a fascinating statement he says foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head that's not exactly a warm welcome is it he simply makes a statement. He says, look around at the foxes and the birds that are all over the place in this particular area of the world. Look at all of them. They have their own nests. But I, on the other hand, I don't have anything. I don't have a home. I don't have a bedroom. I don't have a bed. I don't have anything. I travel light. The creatures have better accommodations than the creator. It's a point he's trying to make. It's as though he's saying to this man, listen, if you think you're going to hit your wagon to me and I'm going to lead you on to wealth and power and privilege and prosperity, you have no idea who I am and you have no idea where I'm actually going. I currently don't even have my own home and things are going to get worse from there. 
my road isn't heading toward all the worldly values that you so lust after. My road is headed to a Roman cross where I'm going to die. And I'm going to be buried. And between here and there, I travel light. My friends, the the road of following after Christ is not a road of wealth and privilege and power and prosperity. That's not where the road leads. Those are all the things that the world values. Those are all the things that your friends and neighbors and mine pursue with all their heart. That they wake up in the morning thinking about and go to bed at night worrying about. But these are not the things that drive the disciple who follows Christ. They're worldly values. You can pursue worldly values in secular ways, and you can pursue worldly values in religious ways. But in either case, that pursuit is incongruent with the call to follow Christ. And to be very clear and frank with you, that's why in our day, the prosperity gospel is not just a a sort of a trivial problem. If you don't know what the prosperity gospel is, Joe Carter gives us a good definition. He says this, it's a perversion of the gospel of Jesus that claims that God rewards increases in faith with increases in health and wealth. It's the idea that in Christ's atonement that he has guaranteed our wealth and our privilege and our health. And that all of those things in abundance are signs of God's blessing on a person's life. And the foghorns that blast that garbage throughout our culture and around the world are condemning people to an eternity apart from Christ. It's not just a trivial problem because it's 180 degrees opposite the direction of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just a slight deviation, it's in fact the exact opposite direction. The call to follow Christ is not a call to pursue our own selfish ends. It's not a call to pursue wealth and power and privilege and prestige. God may choose in his providence and his kindness to grant some of those things along the way, but that is never the pursuit of a true believer of Christ. The call to follow Christ is what we saw just a couple of weeks ago. It's to come deny yourself, take up your cross, die to all those things, and pursue Christ whatever the cost. This man had not counted the cost to follow Christ. He's a prime example of the rocky soil from the parable of the sower. Because he hasn't counted the cost, he doesn't truly want to follow Christ where Christ is going. And what's interesting about him and the other two that we'll see very briefly here is that we're not told what they end up doing. I don't know. You can guess for yourself. But he had to learn the hard way that there's a price to following Christ. There's a cost that comes with it. The free gift of God's grace, grace costs everything. Then another man comes up in verse 59. This one, Jesus engages him, follow me, the Lord says. But he says, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Now, again, on the surface, this is not, an, uh, this is not a, uh, an ungodly request. It seems, in fact, very reasonable. 
this person agrees to follow Christ. Christ, I want to follow you. But there's just one caveat. There's just one thing I want to do first. I want to go and I want to bury my father. Now, in the particular culture in the first century, this was every son's actual religious duty was to see to it that your father was properly buried. There were only two exceptions in the Old Testament law. One was Nazarites, people who had taken a Nazarite vow, and the high priest, because they couldn't be in the vicinity of a dead body. Apart from that, it was every son's responsibility, religiously and legally, to bury their father. So it doesn't sound like it's an unreasonable request. But we have to stop for a minute and ask a question that we need to explore. The, the question is this, is this man's father already dead or not? It appears that he's still living. Because in those days, when someone died, they didn't embalm like we do here in our funeral homes and such and hold people you know, preserved for a period of time before we have a funeral. When people died, they were normally buried within 24 hours. And largely, the family would stay near the body until the burial. And so the fact that the man is with Jesus and he's not with his family indicates to me, at least, that the father is still living. So the request is not, my father is dead, I need to go home and take care of affairs. The issue is, my father is living, and what I'd really like to do, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me go home and, and tend to family affairs first. At some point, my father is going to kick the bucket. And when he does... I'll follow you. I've got some things I want to attend to at home. And then I'll come follow you. Now, at the very least, the man's problem is he isn't willing to, to leave his family to follow Christ. He isn't willing to leave his family. He wants to go back home. He wants to wait until his father passes. And then, after that takes place, he'll follow Christ. That's the best reading of this. At worst, what he's really thinking is, I, I don't want to miss out on my inheritance. So I'm going to go home until my father dies. And when he dies, I'll receive my inheritance. And then when I get my, when I get my cash, I'll come follow you. I'll leave it to your interpretation to decide which one you think it is. Maybe it's both. But the bottom line is this, he's not willing to follow Christ right now. He's got some other things to do first. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And that first phrase is a play on words. He's saying to the man, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. It's sort of a, uh, sort of a, 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 just a play on words there. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, your family can be cared for by other people. I'm calling you to come after me and follow after me. Even lost people know how to and take great care to care for their funeralizing and burial of their family members. You don't specifically need to go home and take care of that if that's your concern. There are others who can take care of your family and your father. Right now, I'm calling you to follow after me. It may seem cold at first glance. But Jesus' call is very clear. He's saying to this man, I won't be put on hold even for good things. The time to follow is right now, not later. It's right now. Jesus is saying to this man, I won't take second place to anybody, not even your family. I demand first place. That's what it means to follow after me. It means to abandon every other pursuit and to follow after me whatever the cost.
you may remember earlier in the Gospels, Mark records something similar to Luke in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus comes along and he calls his initial apostles. He says to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what did they do? What does it tell us? They immediately left their nets and they did what? And they followed Christ. That is the call and that is the right response. The right response to the call to follow Christ is not, Jesus, I'll follow you, but I've got some things I need to take care of first. Let me go and, and deal with this first and then I'll get back around to this. Jesus, I, I, I hear you, I like you, I respect you, I believe the things that you're saying, and I really want to be a part of your kingdom, but I've got some other stuff to, to take care of. But I'll come back. That is such a common response to the call to Christ. There are probably people in the room right now who don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, who've heard the gospel over and over again, and who've thought to themselves, you know, that sounds pretty believable. I think what they're saying about Jesus is true. And I know I am a sinner, that's, that's pretty clear. And I know that I need a savior. And I know that Jesus is probably the only way, the only truth and the only life. And then my only hope for this life and eternity is to, is to repent of my sin and entrust my life to Christ as savior and Lord. I'm just not ready to do it right yet. I've got some other things I need to take care of. I've got some other affairs I need to get in order. I, I need to get my act together first. I need to work out some of my affairs first. I need to get some, some things out of my system first. My friends, delayed obedience is no different than disobedience. The call to follow Christ is a call to follow now. The time of salvation is now. To presume that you're going to have a tomorrow or a next week or an opportunity next month or next year is to presume upon the grace of God in your life. There may be no other opportunity than the one you have right this moment. The right response to the call of Christ in your life is to repent of your sin and bow yourself before him right now. What about you, believer? You're a Christian, you're in the room. This isn't just about the initial call to follow. It's about the ongoing call to follow Christ. What things is, is God drawing you to? Do you know God is calling you to in your own life? But you're responding to him. It's okay, God, I, I know you want me to do this. I know you want me to go there. I know you want me to do that. But first let me fill in the blank. God, I know, I know, I, 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 I know that I've repented and trusted you, and I know I need to be baptized, but I, just let me do that later. I've got some other things to do first. Lord, I, I know you're, you're calling me to connect with a local body of believers and become a part of a local church where I can serve and fellowship with other believers, but, but let me do this first. God, I, I, I know you want me to honor you with my finances and be a part of supporting the work of your kingdom. But, but, but I've got these other priorities financially. And once I get done with all of that, Lord, I, I'll, I'll come and honor you this way. Maybe this morning you hear God calling you to abandon your career altogether, to serve as a missionary, to serve as a pastor, to serve as a military chaplain, to serve somewhere in this world where people need to hear the gospel and they don't have somebody to tell them. And the response of your heart is, I hear that, Lord. I hear it, I know, but let me just do this first. And I, I need to take care of that, and, and I'll consider that maybe next year. 
My friends, delayed obedience is the same as disobedience. Christ says, when I call you, the time to respond is right now. Right now. Not first let me, not later down the road, but right now. Right now. Well, that's this man's issue. There's a third, and it's quite similar to the second. A man says, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those who are at my home. The issue is, Lord, I don't need to go back and wait till my dad dies and get my inheritance. I do just want to go home and give mom a hug and say bye to dad. And after that, I'll come follow you. But again, it's the same issue. Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me. It's another way of saying, Jesus, you're a priority, but you're not my first priority. That's something else I need to do first. I'm not sure what this man's motives are. Perhaps Jesus knew what would happen to him if he delayed and he went home. Maybe he would go home and get distracted with other things and never get around to coming back. Maybe he'd go home and his parents wouldn't agree or his family wouldn't agree with the calling that Christ had placed on him and convince him to stay. Maybe he's just like me and he's getting old and senile and he starts doing one thing and forgets what he started to do. This is true. This is honest confession. I'm pulling up in the confessional here. When my wife asks me to do things and I say, yes, I'll do it. Uh, she can tell you the percentages. My guess is somewhere between 30 to 50% of the time, I respond, okay, I'll do that, but let me go do this first. And about 30 to 50% of the time, she'll come back later and say, did you go do that? And I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't do it. I, I went over here and did this first. I totally forgot. Don't look at me like that. You do that too, right? <laughs> right? Maybe that's what's going on. It's possible. I don't know what's going on here. But what we know is this. He isn't the priority. There's something else that's in the way that he wants to do first. And so Jesus says to him, he uses an old proverb from the eighth century, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. And I love things like that that are just so easy to understand. Like, we're not farmers, but you can get the picture, right? If you're trying to plow a straight line in your field, you cannot, absolutely cannot do that looking backwards over your shoulder. The farmer who tries to plow looking over his shoulder is gonna have the goofiest looking field you've ever seen. It's gonna be zigzagging all over the place. You cannot do it. It's like you can't run a race looking over your shoulder. You can't run in a straight line. You'll be zigzagging all over the track. And Jesus is simply making the point, listen, if you're going to follow me, your, your face has to be forward. There's no looking back. There's no going back. There's no other thing that you need to do. The answer is follow me right here, right now, moving forward, eyes forward, no looking back, abandoning everything else and leaving it behind. I'll be your first priority or I'll be no priority. That's the response. I won't take second place to anybody. I won't compete for your commitment. I won't compete for your affection. You'll be the first, I'll be your first priority or I'll be nothing. Coming to Christ and being a disciple, a follower of his is accepting a priority structure in our lives. It says Christ is number one. And everything and everybody else falls somewhere down the line. Jesus Christ is not going to settle for being one of many priorities in your life. He'll be the first priority or he'll be no priority. He's the king and he deserves the first place. 
Well, our time is, is, is way up this morning. But this text is convicting. It's convicting to me because I know how easy it is for me to be angry and vengeful rather than patient and merciful. Do you understand that? Is that true of you too? Particularly when people reject me. Particularly when people reject Christ. This is convicting to me because I know how often the clear call of Christ comes into my life to do something or say something or go somewhere or be something or whatever. And my immediate response is, okay, I'll do that, Jesus, but just let me first fill in the blank. And I know what it's like to have other priorities crowd into my life and say, Jesus, I want to be your follower, but there's other things going on that really are in the forefront right now. Let me ask you this morning, does any of that ring true in your heart? Any of that ring true in your life? If you're an unbeliever here, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're like those in that crowd. You're just kind of watching from the periphery. You're sitting on the fence, just sort of waffling, wondering, waiting, maybe waiting for some other time. You need to hear the Lord Jesus say to you this morning, right now is the time of salvation. You need to respond now. Believer, what is it that you're not responding to? What is it that's a priority in your life that's in the way? What do you need to repent of and clear out of the way of your life so that your discipleship is not cluttered and you're plowing a straight line forward for Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're gracious and you are kind. You are far more merciful and patient than are we. And you are consistent in that and we are not Lord we live in a world that is not unlike the world in which you live most people reject you most people choose not to follow you most people either outright reject you or just ignore you altogether and as followers of yours we face some of that ourselves and it's hard to be merciful and it's hard to be patient. And at times we get angry and we want to seek justice and vengeance. Lord, help us this morning not to usurp your authority, but to recognize our place and give us a heart that reflects your heart, a heart of mercy and a heart of patience, a heart that's broken over lost people and their rejection of you, a heart that weeps over their distance from you, a heart that weeps over their eternal destiny. or eradicate from our hearts and minds any sinful vengeance and anger. May the world see in us what we want them to see in you, mercy and grace and patience. And Lord, for those who may be in the room who've heard your call but are delaying, there's something they want to do first. I pray that right this moment, Lord, they would respond to you in faith and obedience. Nothing in the way, no delay. That's what discipleship looks like. That's what it means to follow you. May every one of us in this room be that kind of believer. For we pray it in your holy name. Amen.